Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 21. And we're going to look together and consider together um, the salvation of God's people, how it is that people are saved by God. So turn in your Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 891, starting in verse 14. If you remember, uh, as, we've been, as we've been working through Romans 9 through 11, um, we've kind of been looking largely at the nation of Israel. That's kind of a, a key theme, a, a big kind of recurring element of Romans 9 through 11. Uh, and and it's, the reason why Paul is dealing with the nation of Israel is because he is kind of handling this objection that he's anticipating from his readers, which we've kind of uh, rehearsed uh, several times, but it's worth mentioning again. Um, you know, Paul has just spent eight unhurried chapters working through a lot of heavy, high, lofty theological doctrine about his gospel. Romans 1 through 8 is Paul kind of outlining his gospel of how people are saved, reconciled to God, and it's through faith in Jesus, right? His gospel is that all of humanity stands uh, guilty before God, Uh, Jews, Gentiles, atheists, religious people, non-religious people, Romans 1 through 3, we all stand guilty before God because he is holy and righteous and we lack the righteousness that God requires of us. Romans 4 and and 5 and following, he kind of walks through how uh, since we lack the righteousness that God requires to be saved, how then can we be saved? And, and the idea is that uh, Jesus, uh, God sent his son Jesus to come live a perfect life, fulfilling the law of God that we failed to fulfill, dying as a sacrifice in our place, place dying the death that we deserve to die, satisfying the wrath of God. And if we look to Jesus and trust in Jesus, we can be saved from our sin. Right, Romans 5 and following kind of outlines, uh, as we're saved from our sin, God will reconcile us to himself, reconcile us to the family of God, adopt us as his children, give us uh, the, this outpouring of his Holy Spirit, give us new life. We won't be bound by our sin and by the law anymore like we used to be. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can ever separate you. Death, life, angels, heaven, hell, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. That brings us through Romans 8. So Romans 1 through 8, Paul has established all of that. And then the objection that he anticipates that he spends Romans 9 through 11 thinking about and talking about is, all right, fine, that, or Paul, that's, that's all well and good. We hear you articulating all of these promises that God has made to us in the gospel, but God, if your gospel, Paul, if your gospel is true, then God doesn't exactly have the best track record of keeping promises because what about the nation of Israel? What about uh, all of the promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David? Right? What about all of God's promises? If, if Paul's gospel is true, then God did not keep his promises to Israel. So why should we think that God is going to keep his promises to us, to Christians? And so in Romans 9, Paul begins to answer that question, begins to address it. And he says, uh, I hear your objection that you think that the word of God has failed, but let me tell you emphatically, most assuredly, the word of God has not failed. And he says, the reason, the, 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 it's not that the word of God, it's not that you rightly understood God's promises to Abraham and the forefathers and that God's word has failed. It's that you didn't understand 
the nature of God's promises as he intended them to be understood. It's not that every single ethnically Jewish person is going to be saved. It's that uh, God is going to save uh, certain persons within the nation of Israel, and he's always going to preserve a, a remnant of faithful believers within the nation of Israel. So the fact that there are Jewish people who do not trust in Christ and therefore are not saved does not mean that God has failed to keep his promises. And then he says, ultimately, it doesn't. And the reason why is because salvation is not a function of your, the, your ethnicity, your race, your nationality, right? You're not saved because you are from, descend from a particular nation. It doesn't depend on works or human will or desire or effort or, or exertion of any kind. It depends on God's grace and God's mercy. And God is entirely justified to save people that way because God is the creator. God can do whatever he wants that will bring him the most glory. So there are plenty of ethnically Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus will not be saved. There are also plenty of Gentiles who do believe in Jesus and therefore will be saved. And that brings us pretty much up to midway through Romans 10 where we ended last week. And then we'll start uh, in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 this week and kind of dissect a little bit more, reverse engineer a little bit more how exactly that happens, how exactly a person is saved, and, and how does this faith in Christ that Paul has been, has been teaching and kind of talking about, how does it work itself out? What does it look like and how does it, how does it happen? So we're going to consider that this morning as we read Romans 10, starting in verse 14. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So then, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Verse 18, but, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But then I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and with a foolish nation I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held my hands out to a disobedient and a contrary people. It's God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we humbly ask for your grace in these next few minutes as we read and consider and meditate on your word together. We ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us. We ask that you would sanctify us. We ask that you would convict us of sin, assure us of the pardon that we have in Jesus, uh, galvanize us and, and uh, animate us so that we might be more like Christ. And it's in, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so 
uh, passage this morning starts with this kind of lengthy domino effect of questions one after the other. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without uh, someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Right? The idea is that uh, people need to hear the gospel to trust in Jesus. Right? That, that, that apart from actively placing their faith in Christ, apart from hearing the gospel and deciding, making a, a decision of your own volition and will to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, apart from trusting in Jesus, you cannot be saved. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are, how religiously meticulous and fastidious you are. It doesn't matter how sincere you are, how spiritual you are. A person cannot be saved unless they trust in Jesus. Acts 4, there is no name under heaven by which man can be saved apart from Christ. 1 Timothy 2, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. A person cannot be saved unless they trust in Jesus. And a person cannot trust in Jesus unless they're made aware of him. Unless they can't believe the gospel, unless they hear the gospel, which is why it's so important for us as Christians to be actively involved in and engaged in proclaiming the gospel to the people around us, to be diligent in sharing our faith. It's the big idea in verses 14 and 15. People are saved by trusting in Jesus. People need to hear the gospel to trust in him, so we need to proclaim the gospel to those people. Evangelism is not an optional, elective add-on to the Christian life, something that is reserved for the spiritually, uh, you know, the, the, the strongest and, and elite. Evangelism is, I mean, evangelism is the very essence of the Christian life. Evangelism is part of the, the great commission, the reason that the church exists, the, the sole purpose why the church exists is, is to uh, make disciples and to proclaim the gospel. Now, uh, a couple of things that I think is, is uh, helpful to note as we talk about and think about the primacy and the priority and, and our um, responsibility to, to uh, do the work of evangelism, to share the gospel with others. Let me give three, three quick points before we move on to verse uh, 16. First, uh, there are a number of different ways to go about sharing the gospel. Uh, as a pastor, I, there's a pitfall that I see a lot of people fall into, not just in evangelism, but in all sorts of areas of the Christian life. And the pitfall is that they take something that God has called them to, but then they define it very narrowly. They define it in such a way that they, can, they then think, well, I'm not doing that. I don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I want to do that. So I'm just going to punt on that, and I'm just going to you know, absolve my conscience by saying that that's not really my gift. It's not really my thing. I'm going to leave that to other people who are better at it, and I will kind of invest in other forms of Christian uh, obedience and discipleship. Right? I'm going to take this thing God's called me to, I'm going to define it very narrowly in a way that I can't do it or I'm not willing to do it, and then I'm just not going to do it. So, I would encourage you not to do that. And so, uh, the, uh, you know, all different kinds of 
ways that this can apply, but you know, you see it in prayer, right? Uh, prayer means sitting in, silently in my room all by myself, on my knees, hardwood floor, head bowed, eyes closed, 30 minutes or more, uninterrupted. If I fall asleep, it doesn't count. If my mind wanders, it doesn't count. So, and I'm going to do that every, every single day, never miss a day. And, and so I've, that's how I define prayer. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm a, I'm a pastor, and I don't often pray like that. And so we say, I'm going to define prayer like that, and then I'm going to just kind of throw in the towel and say, because I can't do that, because I'm not willing to do that, I'm just not, I don't have the spiritual gift of prayer, I'm not going to pray. And I would encourage you to not define prayer for that narrowly, right? You don't have to pray for, you can pray for 10 minutes or 5 minutes. You can pray with your spouse, you can pray with your kids. You can come to our member meetings and pray with your church family. We can start a Sunday school class that's devoted to corporate prayer. We could pray together during that. You could go, to, go on prayer walks. You could pray while you drive, pray while you take a shower, pray while you do the dishes, pray while you mow the lawn. You could read a psalm, which are prayers, and then pray that psalm back to to God, right? The, the, the point is, prayer is not this, like, it's only defined this way. I'm not good at that, so I'm not going to do it. There's a bajillion ways to pray, so think and be creative about how you want to grow in prayer and be faithful in prayer, and then, and then find a way that, that works and, and do it. Same thing we talk with this with the, with the elders, but same thing with, with teaching, right? God has call, God's called every Christian, not just elders, but every Christian, to teach and admonish one another. Every Christian has a responsibility to teach in some capacity. Now, elders uh, have a qualification that they have to be able to teach. But every Christian has a responsibility that they should be teaching. They should be trying to, to teach. So teach someone something. And so if we take teaching and say, all right, I'm going to define teaching as exactly what Ben is doing right now. Right? Like yelling, you know, open Bible, a monologue, better part of an hour, just going for it, uh, and, 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 you know, that is what it means to teach. I can't do that. I'm not willing to do that, so I guess I don't have a gift of teaching. Well, then I would say to that person, that's not, that you've defined teaching super narrow, right? There are a bajillion ways to preach that don't look much at all like what I'm doing right now. There, there are a bajillion ways to preach sermons on Sunday morning that don't look a lot like what I'm doing right now. You can preach for 15 minutes or 10, I would encourage elders and people who want to be elders aspire toward preaching in this pulpit on Sunday morning and it doesn't have to look like this you could read very you know kind of very robotically from a manuscript you could preach for 15 minutes 10 minutes you could teach a Sunday school you could lead a small group you could start a book club you could invite a friend to lunch and and be intentional to talk with them about something while you're there. Explain to them what you read in the Bible that morning and what it means and why it is important. You can share an article that you read and found edifying with someone and then follow up with them and have a conversation about it later. You could compile some tips and best practices on parenting or Whatever else that you feel competent in, share them with someone who is, uh, you know, share them with someone whose kids are younger than yours, or share them with someone who is not as far along in that particular area. There, there's, a, there's a bajillion ways that you can be faithful to the command to teach and admonish one another that doesn't look exactly like preaching a sermon like I'm doing right now. So prayer and teaching, but also evangelism, right? We define evangelism right? Walk up to a stranger that I don't know, 
poke them in the chest, right? Tell them they're going to hell. Tell them they need to believe in Jesus. Hope I don't get punched in the face, right? Define, right? It's street corner, bullhorn, you know, whatever it is, right? If, you know, walking up to, to random doors, knocking on them, interrupting people's dinner, trying to squeeze in a line or two about God before they ask me to leave, right? If we define evangelism in these very narrow ways, then we're like, well, I'm, I'm not good at that. I don't like that. It's not comfortable, so I'm just not going to do it. And I would encourage you to be, right, we should be faithful in prayer, and if that means we need to broaden what prayer means, do it. We should be faithful in teaching others. If that means we broaden what it means to teach others, do it. We should be faithful in evangelism. If that means we need to broaden what that means, do it. And there's a million ways that aren't nearly as uncomfortable or, or as kind of confrontational that you could share the gospel, right? You find yourself sitting next to someone, you know, sitting in an airplane. You can have a conversation with someone about them and who they are and chances are what's most important to you and your relationship with Jesus are going to come up. If you, you know go out to eat, you could ask your server how you could uh, pray for them. And if they're caught off guard by that, you just tell them that Jesus loves them, maybe hand them a, a gospel tract or something. Tip well, right? You can invite your neighbors over for, for dinner, share your testimony, tell them about your relationship with Jesus, invite them to consider it themselves. Conversations with your coworkers in the break room, maybe they're going out to dinner or they're going out for a drink after, after work, go along with them. Right? There's, there's tons of opportunities to inject spiritual realities and or the gospel of Jesus into conversations. We just have to be, right? if you're a parent, if you're a parent, you have, you have a captive audience for 18 years. So you're going to have a lot of time to share the gospel with your kids for while they're living in your house. And so you'll be able to explore with them who Jesus is and what he has done for them and how Jesus is calling them to respond to him in the gospel. And then you'll be able to give them space to consider it and to make their faith their own as they, as they grow up. There's a ton of different ways to share the gospel with other people. So don't define it so narrowly that you then resign yourself and say, I'm not going to do it, Right? Think about it more creatively and then be faithful to press into it as best as you can. So that's one point of application is that there's a lot of different ways to share the gospel. Second is this. God is calling us to be diligent in evangelism. Verses 14 and 15 make that clear. And God is calling us to be diligent in discipling others. Verses 14 and 15 seem to have mostly unbelievers in mind, right? People that have never believed, people that have never heard. And so it's calling us to take the gospel to those people that have never heard it, proclaim the gospel to them so that they can hear it, believe it, be reconciled to God. But you know who else needs to hear the gospel is Christians. You and me and all of us, right? When non-Christians hear the gospel and are invited to believe it, that's called evangelism. When Christians hear the gospel and are invited to consider it afresh, right? Invited to internalize it and obey it and apply it and live a life that is consistent with it, that's called discipleship. And that's part of the Great Commission too, right? The Great Commission is not go and make converts of all nations. Go and get as many people as you can to make a decision to accept Christ or to pray the sinner's prayer or to invite Jesus into their heart. And then as soon as they do, quickly move on to someone else so that you can get as many people as you can. The, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is go and make disciples of all nations. 
So if we're going to be obedient to the Great Commission, we have to share the gospel with people so that they can hear it, believe it, become a Christian, and we have to walk with them. Teach them, train them on how to walk with Jesus so that they can follow him, so that they can thrive in their Christian life. God wants us to do evangelism, and God wants us to disciple others. It cuts both ways here. So if all you find yourself doing is discipleship, right? If you look at your life and most of your spiritual admonishment, your spiritual exhortation comes in the form of talking to other Christians, people who are already following Jesus, and you're trying to help them do that better, then God is probably calling you to get out of your comfort zone a little bit, step out in faith, and engage with non-believers and tell them about Christ. And, on the flip side, if all you're ever doing is evangelism, and you're super, right, you're super willing to engage any stranger and tell them about Jesus, but then as soon as you do, whether they believe it or not, have a nice life, on to the next one, good luck finding a, a good church, good luck figuring out how to walk with Jesus, I wish you the best because I'm not going to help you at all then God's probably calling you to slow down and recognize that the Christian life and the Great Commission is a marathon, not a sprint. And, and God is not calling us to close as many deals as we can and get people to make as many decisions as we can. God is calling us to make disciples. So don't just share the gospel with people. Share your life with them. Invite them to church with you. Invite them not just to believe in Jesus, but to follow Jesus with you. So one, one item to note is that there's a myriad of different ways that we can share the gospel with others. A second thing to note is that God wants us to be diligent, not just in evangelism, but also in discipling others. And the third is that in order to obey the Great Commission, the church needs people to go, and the church needs people to send. Right? That's what we see in verse 15, right? How are they going to preach unless they are sent. So the, ta- the, the Great Commission, the task of making disciples, planting churches, proclaiming the gospel to the lost, no one person can do that all by themselves. It's a group effort. It's a multi-faceted approach. And so there is the tip of the spear, right? People who cross borders, oceans, insert themselves into other cultures, people groups, learn languages, translate Bibles, preach the gospel, plant churches, raise up pastors and and elders. And there's also an entire infrastructure that enables and facilitates and supports them in that effort. People buying their plane tickets, paying their salary, making sure that they have a home to return to praying for them while they're there, traveling to where they go on short-term trips to support and help and encourage. And so without the goers, the Great Commission will come to a grinding halt and the church at large will collectively be in disobedience to God. We need goers, but we also need Senders. If the entire church was all goers and no senders, then things would break down as, as well. God has kind of created it such that there's this multifaceted, 
body with all different body parts that all do different things, but all collaborate together and work together to accomplish his great commission. So if you're not personally in a position to go, and many of us are not, depending on what kind of ministry you're talking about, if we're referring to cross-cultural, sell your house, sell your stuff, bring your family, move to another country, learn another language, plant a church where no church exists, Right? If that's not something that's realistically possible for you right now, that's okay. Don't beat yourself up over it. Don't wallow in guilt because the church does not just need goers. The church needs senders. So if you're not in a position to go, then send. Support a missionary. Build a relationship with them. Respond to them when they send you an update letter. Tell them you're praying for them. Send them a care package with peanut butter or something in it, right? Ask them, ask them the name of the people that they are ministering to and then pray for them and then follow up with them a month or two later and ask them if they have seen fruit in their ministry with those people and has, has the Holy Spirit been working in there when they come back to America. Invite them to live in your home. Let them borrow your car. The church needs people to go and the church needs people to send, And frankly, you have to do one or the other. Right? Uh, if you're a Christian, if you're a part of the church, God has given the church a mission, the church a great commission to make disciples of all nations. You can't opt out of that. There's, the church can't opt out of that, and no individual Christian can opt out of that. So you don't have to go, but if you're not going to go, then you have to be involved in sending. One theologian puts it, Uh, He said, there are three kinds of Christians. There are those who go, there are those who send, and there are those who are disobedient. So one, there's a number of ways to go about sharing the gospel with someone. Think about it, think creatively, carve some out for yourself, and then do them. Two, God is calling us to be diligent in evangelism and in discipling others. So be thinking and praying about lost people you can share the gospel with and be thinking about and praying about Christians that you can mentor and disciple and bring along in their faith. And then three, uh, in order to obey the Great Commission, the church needs people to go and it needs people to send. So frankly, think about going. I would love it if someone here said, I'm going to go be a missionary. But if you're not going to go, then, then think about and pray about sending and actively helping others to go so that the gospel can go forth because that's the, purpose for why, that's the purpose why the church exists, is to fulfill the great commission that God has, has given us. So that's three items to note, kind of looking at the first two verses. And we'll continue on. It says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Quote from Isaiah Chapter 52, verse 7. And in that chapter, God is saying, in Isaiah 52, it's God saying, salvation is coming, right? My people have been sold into slavery in Egypt, and they've been dominated by Assyria and other uh, foreign nations and hostile actors. They've been trafficked. Uh, it's, It's sad. They're mourning. They're crying out for help. But don't worry, because I, God, I am coming to save them. And before I do, I'm going to send messengers out before me, people that are going to come and preach the good news that God is coming to save his people. That's Isaiah 52. And Paul's saying that is exactly what is happening in the gospel and in the Great Commission. God is coming to save people not from Assyria or Egypt, 
but from their sin and from death and wrath and hell. God is coming to save them, and God is sending out messengers, us, the church. God is sending out messengers to bring the good news to the people that God is coming to save them. That's what it means to to preach the good news. And Paul says people who do that are uh, beautiful. How beautiful are the the feet of those who who proclaim the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done to the world that desperately needs to hear it. Then in verses 16 and following, we're going to see three questions um, that Paul asks about the nation of Israel and about how they have interacted with the good news of the gospel. So in verse 16, we're going to see, have they obeyed? In verse 18, we're going to see, have they heard? And in verse 19, we're going to see, have they understood? Have they obeyed, have they heard, and have they understood? So take them in that order. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So the, it's easy, right? It's a, a pretty straightforward test here, right? Question one, has all of Israel obeyed the gospel? Answer, plainly, no, they have not all obeyed the gospel, which is kind of a restating of what we looked at in Romans 9, right? That, that not all who have descended from the nation of Israel are part of the true spiritual Israel. There are uh, Isaacs and Ishmaels. There are Jacobs and Esaus. Not every ethnically Jewish person believes. So yeah, no, not all of them have obeyed the gospel. Many have not. And then he quotes uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he has, has heard from us? And so, question one, has all the nation of Israel obeyed the gospel? No, they have not. And then in verse 17, he kind of circles back to what he was saying in 14 and 15 and kind of summarizes and synthesizes and kind of brings conclusion to that thought. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes through the word of Christ. Right? So this is kind of uh, restating everything from verses 14 and 15. Faith only comes from hearing the gospel. Faith in Jesus cannot come apart from hearing the gospel, right? Specifically hearing the word of Christ, the the words about, the good news about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. That's the only way that a conversion can be saved is if they hear the gospel and repent of their sin and believe it. Show of hands if you've heard this phrase before. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Heard that? Seen a bumper sticker with that? So, uh, not sure when it was first coined. It's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He might have said it. He didn't, as far as I can tell. Uh, I, I, I read, I, I looked into it. So it probably is one of those things where, because like, St. Francis of Assisi was a great guy, but he was also very faithful in verbally sharing his faith. He was a, a friar in the 13th century. Um, he said some things, uh, he said some things that maybe are kind of tangentially, like maybe some of the language was borrowed from him, but, you know, it's a situation where, like, if you hear a quote that you think is cool, so you're like, I think you'd, like, say that Abraham Lincoln said it, or like George Washington said it, so that hopefully it will, it'll stick. I think maybe that's what happened with St. Francis of, of Assisi. But regardless of who said it, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. The idea, I think, is that 
If you are a godly person, a loving person, a good neighbor, a good friend, a good Christian, then if you do that, then you are preaching the gospel. And then sometimes, when it's appropriate, when it's absolutely necessary, you can also preach the gospel by speaking it verbally. Now, for the sake of being as charitably as, as charitable as I possibly can, I do think that there is something good and valuable kind of lurking in, in there, which is that we as Christians should make every attempt to live lives that are consistent with the gospel that we preach, the gospel that we claim to believe. It is not appropriate, it is sin against God to say that you believe in Jesus, tell other people that they need to believe in Jesus like you do while you are in open rebellion to God, cheating on your spouse, lying, stealing, abusing people, that is not okay. So if you claim to believe in Jesus, you have to live like it. You have to live a life that is consistent with the gospel that you claim to believe. And So that idea is lurking around in that quote somewhere, and I think it's right and, and true. What the quote's also doing is kind of implying that as you go about your life, if you are living in a way that is consistent with the gospel that you, came to, that you claim to believe, then you are actually preaching the gospel. You're just doing it without words. And I would submit to you that that is not possible because of, because of just what the, the gospel is and what the word means, right? The, the word gospel literally means good news. Good news about Jesus and who he is and what he has done for you and how you can be saved if you trust in him. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of, of Jesus. And so the thing about good news or any news is that it's made up of words that can only be conveyed if you say them, if you speak them, if you articulate them. You can't preach good news or any news of any kind without saying words. Or as Paul puts it, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So, should we strive to live lives that are consistent with the gospel that we claim to believe? Yes, absolutely. But when we do that, are we preaching the gospel? Should we go to bed at night satisfied and confident that I've spent all day obeying God's command to share the gospel with others if I've simply spent that day praying and being kind to, to people? I think the answer is no. You might be living in light of the gospel, which is a good thing. You might be demonstrating the effects of the gospel with your life, which is a good thing. You might be adorning the gospel, which is language that Paul uses in Titus chapter 2, which is a good thing. But you're not preaching the gospel, because preaching the gospel involves uh, saying words and articulating the good news about Jesus. So it's, it's good to pray, it's good to be nice to people. I'd go so far as to say it's, an enti- it's entirely appropriate to go an entire day where all that you do to serve God is pray and be nice to people. I think that's perfectly, perfectly appropriate. But during that day, you didn't preach the gospel. You prayed and you were nice to people. And so if you wake up one morning and you read your Bible and you, you feel convicted that you need to preach the gospel to someone that day, that's a good and noble impulse I would encourage you to do it. 
And the only way to do it is if you actively, verbally share with someone the good news about Jesus, who he is and what he has done for them and how they can be saved if they trust in him. Faith comes from hearing, specifically hearing the words of of Christ. So, we looked at the first, it's kind of weird, right? Like verse 17 is kind of uh, attached with verses 14 through 15. Verse 16 is like the first of those three objections, has all of Israel obeyed? So we're going to now kind of dovetail back and look at the second of those three questions. We looked at verse 16, the first question. Uh, Verse 18 is going to show us the second question, which is, uh, has Israel heard the gospel? But I ask, have they not heard? And his answer, indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So, has the nation of Israel heard the gospel in a collective, holistic sense? Have they heard the good news about God's grace? And Paul's answer is yes. And his scriptural evidence for why he thinks the answer to that question is yes is from Psalm 19, verse 4. Their voice has gone out to the world, or it's gone out to all the earth, the words to the ends of the world. Now, in Psalm 19, that is referring to the glory of God as revealed in nature. Right? The, the, a beautiful sunrise or, or a creation that, that gives evidence that it was created by a creator. That, that word, that, that uh, general revelation has gone out to the entire world according to Psalm 19. There's two categories of revelation in the Bible. Right? You've got, uh, well, two, cate- two theological categories for revelation. You've got general revelation and special revelation. And so general revelation is that which every person can see. Uh, you, you don't need anything, any sort of specially mediated, communicated revelation to you. You can just see it. So again, the world that we see outside, right? The, the, our nature as human beings having been created in God's image. We all have access to general revelation. And then special revelation is yeah, your Bible. It's, it's like you know, hearing specific, special words about God that are given specifically and specially to you. So Psalm 19 is saying that the words of general revelation have gone out to all the earth, out to the ends of the world. But Paul is saying, so has the special revelation of God that was given initially to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. Right and and following Moses, um, you know, I'm sorry, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, right? Like all of this special revelation that was given to the nation of Israel has also gone out to all the the world. And so Paul's argument is, how could anyone outside of the nation of Israel have ever heard the gospel? The only way they could have heard it is if the nation of Israel had communicated it to them, had mediated it to them. So has Israel heard the gospel? Of course they have. And we know that they have because the gospel has gone out beyond the borders of the nation of Israel. And the only way that it could is if they heard it and if they mediated it and they proclaimed it out to the the world. You can't tell someone something that you yourself have never heard before. So question one, has all of Israel, every single individual Israelite, obeyed the gospel? No, they have not. There are ethnically Jewish people who do not trust in Jesus, do not believe the gospel. But question two, has the nation of Israel collectively, have they heard the gospel? Yes, they have. 
Israel has heard the gospel, and we know they have because the gospel has, they, they have been instrumental in proclaiming the gospel out beyond themselves, out to the world. And then question three, did they understand? So, uh, did they all obey the gospel? No, they didn't. Did they hear the gospel? Yes, they did. Indeed, they have. And then finally, uh, did they understand? Now, we kind of have to try to, we have to figure out what exactly Paul is asking when he says, did they understand? By looking at his answer to the question, did they understand? And uh, I think the I think what Paul means when he asks, did Israel understand, is did Israel understand that God's plan of redemption involved the gospel going out beyond the nation of Israel, out into the Gentile world, so that Gentiles would come to faith in Christ and be grafted into the people of God, the true spiritual Israel? And did Israel understand that the reason why that was going to happen would be because they themselves, the nation of Israel, was going to uh, reject the gospel? So, did Israel understand that, should, should they have anticipated that they were going to reject the gospel, which was going to result in the gospel being proclaimed to the world, which was going to result, result in Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, being grafted in? Should Israel have anticipated and understood that happening in God's sovereign plan of redemption? And his answer is yes, they they did understand it, or at least they should have understood that that was what was going to happen. And he says the reason why they did or they should have understood that that was going to be how God's plan of redemption worked itself out, I'll give you a couple of verses as to that, that kind of anticipate that that any faithful Israelite would have read and been uh, prepared for. So the first is from Deuteronomy 32, verses, uh, verse 21. Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So Deuteronomy 32 um, talks about the glory of God, the majesty of God. And how the nation of Israel has rejected God, forsaken God. They have been unfaithful to God. It says that the nation of Israel made God jealous by worshiping other gods instead of him. And so God says back to them, all right, you're going to make me jealous by worshiping other gods? Then I will make you jealous by adopting other people as my own people. I'm going to make you jealous by inviting Gentiles to be my people and experience the covenant blessings that were initially offered to Israel. And Paul says, see, like Israel should have understood that Gentiles were going to be included in God's redemptive purposes because way back in Deuteronomy, God says he was going to invite Gentiles who are not part of his people, who are a foolish nation. He's going to invite them in so as to make uh, Israel jealous and prompt them to return back to, to God. Verse 20, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That, we can do the next slide, Zeke, that is from uh, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That is from Isaiah 65, verse 2. So Isaiah 65, 1 and 2, 
two verses back to back, and Paul holds them both up and says, one applies to the Gentiles, the other applies to the nation of Israel. About the Gentiles, Paul says, they were not seeking God. They were not asking for God. They could care less about who God is. They live in other countries, worship other gods, no category for God, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, don't care at all about who God is or how God wants them to relate to him. And yet, even though they were not seeking God, they found God because God revealed himself to them. Romans, Greeks, people in Europe, people in America, people in Asia, Africa, South America, right? Worshiping other gods, not seeking after the true God, but God reveals himself to them. They find him, believe in him, worship him, and are reconciled to him. And frankly, praise God that this is true. Because if it weren't, unless anyone here is uh, Jewish, right? If this weren't true, then we would all be All of our ancestors, if you're not Jewish, thousands of years ago, then your ancestors were worshiping the sun, the moon, false gods. So if you're not Jewish, you descend from a nation that was not worshiping the true God, and God intervened and saved your ancestors, even though they were not seeking God. And so praise God that he has, has done that. So, so chapter 65, verse 1 is speaking primarily about Gentiles. Chapter 65, verse 2 is speaking primarily about the nation of Israel. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So all these Gentile nations are ignorant of God, worshiping other gods. God reveals himself. They repent. They believe. They are included in the covenant. Meanwhile, here's Israel. They know God. They have received revelation about who God is, dating back hundreds of years, back to uh, Moses and before them to, to Abraham. And so they know God, but they're not obeying him and they're not worshiping him. And God is standing there with his arms out. Come to me, return to me, right? Believe in me, trust in me, obey me. Stop ignoring me, stop rejecting me. And they stiff arm him, and they're contrary, and they are rebellious. Gentiles not seeking God, but he reveals himself and they find him. Israel, God is pursuing them, and they are stiff arming him and rebelling uh, against him. And so Paul is saying, Don't act like my gospel that I just explained in Romans 1 through 8, that people who trust in Christ are reconciled to God, Jew or Gentile, and people who do not trust in Christ are outside of God's covenant promises, Jew or Gentile. Don't act like that's new. Don't act like I'm making it up. Don't act like it's not consistent with the Old Testament because it is exactly consistent with the Old Testament. My gospel that man stands condemned by God and is saved by grace through faith in Christ is exactly what we read all throughout the Old Testament. Gentiles are welcomed in and included because they hear about God and trust in him. Jewish people who reject God, even though they know all there is to know about him, are excluded. 
That's consistent all the way Old Testament into the New Testament, and that's what Paul is teaching in Romans uh, 1 through 1 through 8. So he says, I'm not preaching anything new. I'm preaching the same gospel that Moses wrote about, the same gospel that David wrote about, the same gospel that Isaiah wrote about. Salvation comes through faith. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes through the word of Christ. Hearing the good news about Jesus and believing it and trusting in him. And God is calling us, his people, to turn from our sin, believe the gospel, and then proclaim the gospel to a world that desperately needs it so that they can hear it and believe it and be saved by it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, We thank you for the privilege of having heard the gospel of Jesus. We thank you that we have heard the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That Jesus has died in our place, taken our punishment, risen from the dead, given us salvation and new life. And Lord, we pray that we could be faithful stewards of that gospel message to receive it and believe it and cherish it and love it and then to live in light of it and to share it with others. Help us to be a people who proclaim the good news of Jesus so that your gospel and your glory can spread through all the world. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.